Hello, everyone, and welcome to ARC's Chat. My name is Robin Bauer-Kilgo, and I'm one of your hosts for today. A couple of quick technical announcements. Um, there is a slight delay between our Zooming platform and when this is actually pushed out to the public. So just know that if you start commenting or adding questions, we will get to them to eventually. But like I said, there's a touch of a delay. Um, also know that we will be keeping an eye on the chat the entire time. So if you're not already signed into Google, please do so. Um, and then we can go ahead and see uh, what people are saying while they're chatting. Um, a couple of quick news items as well. We are going to have a webinar. ARCS is having a webinar scheduled on September 30th from 2 to 3 p.m. Please go to our website, arcsinfo.org. We'll be opening registration shortly for it. There's only about 100 seats. So if you can go ahead and sign up for it when you can, that would be great. And we wanted to pass along a little bit of a tip about our website while we're online. Um, we actually have a forum area on our website, which is available for members only. If you go to arcsinfo.org, click on forum, log into your membership, you'll see a whole area where you can chat within kind of a private area. If you have questions or comments on things, you can also receive a digest every two, every day that can actually relate to you what the um, what's going on within the community. So if you have any questions on that, feel free to shoot me an email or say something in the chat. My email address is info at arcsinfo.org. And without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic over to John Robinette. Hey, welcome back to the next season of our exciting ARCS chat on YouTube Live. Um, today we have with us Joan Baldwin, but before I get to her, I kind of want to uh, discuss where we are in the sort of the broader continuum of of the chat. Uh, last season we ended with uh, primarily uh, topics related to COVID-19, you know, whether it's shipping or, uh, you know, shipping changes, insurance changes. Then there was a moment where we thought that everyone was going to be selling all of their collections in order to stay afloat. And we had a whole segment with uh, uh, AAMD and their deaccessioning um, resolution, uh, both with Brent Benjamin, the director of AAMD, the, the head, and then also, you know, evaluating that stance with several other attorneys who had um, responses to that. And then we also uh, adapted the other ARCS programming to uh, that emergency that we're still finding ourselves in, you know, both emergency preparedness planning and coop planning <clears throat> And then other uh, um, discussions remained relevant, like the one with Michelle Miller-Fisher, who was discussing um, our role in sort of advocating for ourselves within our institutions uh, amidst all of the unionizing and labor uh, issues that were and still are facing us today. And now our climate has changed quite a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we're on the East Coast here. And so we're looking at reopening. Um, I know in the West Coast, it's a little bit further behind, but right now the discussions are centering around uh, how do we reopen our institutions. Um, but really, this climate is only for those that have work. Uh, so our challenges now are people that um, are at work and have assumed new roles and have new tasks to deal with. Uh, and then those who are looking for work and have lost their job as a, as a result of this, this context. So we're trying to cope with these challenges, uh, you know, as, as a community and as, as ARCs. Um, 
So as you know, um, ARCS is, has been restructuring quite a bit, and we have many new t- uh, task forces and committees, and among them is the Member Advocacy Task Force, which uh, has been helping us out uh, immensely, regard- primarily in this topic for self-advocacy. Uh, they've been working on many different uh, topics uh, for our membership, including uh, those uh, that have lost their work, uh, pay equity, which uh, Joan can speak to quite a bit, paid internships, uh, establishing core competencies, and self-advocacy, which leads us into where we are today. Uh, today um, is partially an outgrowth of our conversations and, and dialogue with that task force, but also a response to uh, our new climate. And as I mentioned, you know, we many of us who still have jobs have new responsibilities because of others who have lost jobs. And then there are people that have lost jobs and or have been furloughed and not been brought back. Uh, and all of this has kind of caused people to even consider leaving the field. So this is another important topic to address. Um, so we're likely to see this idea of self-advocacy permeate the season uh, this year of ARCS Chat. So um, you know, and we'll, we're going to be working along with our member advocacy task force in order to address issues, um, both long-term and, you know, immediate things that come up, uh, along the way. So I also want to point out that, uh, not with us today is Amanda Robinson. Uh, she is exactly the, the, the byproduct of what we're talking about. She is the sole registrar at her, uh, museum, the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, Florida. And due to staff cuts, she now has many more roles. So she is not able to be with us today because she has to do three jobs at once. So, you know, even here, we're not immune. But um, that is actually exactly what we're going to be talking about. So now I would love to introduce uh, Joan Baldwin, who is with us, to speak about advocating for ourselves. Um, You'll know, uh, you'll recognize her name from the keynote address at the 2019 ARCS conference. Uh, She also teaches uh, leadership in the John Hopkins Museum Studies Master's Program, which is online. Sign up for it. (laughs) She's also the co-author of Leadership Matters, which is now in its second edition. She co-authored that with Ann Ackerson uh, and also co-authored with her Women in the Museum. She's the co-founder of the Gender Equity in Museums Movement, and maintains a very, very good blog uh, on 21st Century Museum Leadership. Uh, It's called Leadership Matters, and you can find it at leadershipmatters.1213, wait, no, it's leadershipmatters1213.wordpress.com. So if you want to find out anything more about her, find it on that site. Uh, And uh, anyway, welcome, Joan. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day job to be be with us today. And yes, you do have a day job, despite all of the other things that you seem to be doing. (laughs) So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I had a great time last year at the ARCS conference, and I've followed you all pretty consistently since. I think it's a great organization. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Well, of course, you know, we've been following you and we follow your blog. And one of the recent posts that um, that caught my attention that I thought fit very well with 
this uh, discussion about self-advocacy was the one about self-reflection. Um, and I wanted to talk to you, uh, start today by talking about that post. Um, was there something that happened uh, to you that caused you to want to write that post specifically? Well, yes, I'm, I'm also one of those people that's been affected by, um, by COVID changes. I, I, I work at an independent boarding school and my, where I'm a curator, um, and the programs of, um, special collections and archives sit under the library. And the library is now going into its third year without a leader. And as you might imagine, hiring someone to come and live in community in a boarding school is, is just not going to happen in a pandemic. <laughs> so we, we ended our second try at getting a director last year or last, last March. And in May, I was asked if I would take over the interim directorship and in a moment of madness or drugs or something, I said, yes. So I'm the boss of myself um, and seven other people. And um, it, we, we have a stellar reputation in the school with um, students, faculty, and the wider community whom we also serve. Um, but running parallel to that, we have a reputation as the team that doesn't get along so well, um, which is a weird intersection of stuff. And in an attempt to kind of figure that out this summer, I thought, well, I was doing a lot of self-reflection because, you know, I babbled about leadership on that blog and in books and it finally, I'm, <laughs> I'm forced into doing it. And, um, you know, what is life without irony? Um, and I started thinking maybe we, you know, we all just need to think about what we're saying and doing a little bit more. And so we had a conversation in staff meeting and we will have the conversation again as part of a check-in. But I wanted to just talk with people about, are they doing any kind of self-reflection? I mean, I don't care what kind. Some people reflect every day. Some people it's and it's in writing and some people it's not, it's maybe once a month, but I really think for teams like mine that tend to treat the wider world wonderfully, but each other a little badly sometimes that, that going over your day or your week or even your month, if you can remember all those details um, is a good thing. And just both to say, I did that really awesomely that went super well and also to say man you know maybe if I had a do-over I would do it this way um because the only way to learn is to is to learn the do-over and to start to practice it so that that was it it wasn't um it was just trying to work some of that stuff out for myself um to see if I could make sense of it right I mean, I, I have several questions in response to what you just said. So first and foremost is, um, you know, walking into a leadership position of a team that is notorious for, um, I don't know if infighting is the right word, but not getting along. Um, what, what are the steps you're taking to 
to change that? Well, I think, I guess I should preface this by saying one of the things, I've also been thinking a lot about a possible search, which I'm supposed to manage if we ever get out from under COVID enough to ask someone to visit. But it occurred to me, because I it, this all happened in the middle of George Floyd and thinking about how biases impact our work and blah, blah, blah. And, and I thought, you know, I wonder if our own feelings in trying to do that search last spring, our own sort of, I don't know, guilt is probably too big a word, but did we influence the search by thinking, well, we're just not that great a team and asking all these questions about team management and how you get along with people and all that kind of stuff. Did, did we scare people off? Like you, you know, we need a director who comes in with a whip and a chair. Um, and it wasn't that at all. Um, I, I do think that we've, our previous director was someone who gave everyone a lot of freedom. And for me, I, I greatly benefited from it. I'm pretty self-motivated and I am the only curator. So it can be a bit lonely at times because I don't have a ton of people to check in with, but I kind of know what I'm doing, but everybody was kind of spinning on their own. And there wasn't a sense, this is just my opinion of working for a program that had a common agenda. And so that's to me it is the work that is that you hold in common that's what holds you together not the fact that you're celebrating each other's birthdays or going to your kids somebody's kids soccer game or piano recital i mean that's nice if it happens but that's that that doesn't move the ball down the field for the organization so um we actually started this summer almost before I actually had the position, we wrote uh, a statement of one of those BIPOC statement of solidarities, but it's really, the statement itself is very short and it's really an action plan for us because we're all white women and um, we have an extremely diverse um, population here. And it felt very important that we we have an action plan. And that was, um, that is one of the first things that's kind of given us some architecture and some structure to hold on to as a group, as opposed to just, oh, you know, I'm the archives person. I don't have to think about what someone else is doing because I just do that. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that will help, but you know, you'd have to check in in a few months and see how things are going. (laughs) Yeah, I got you. The other thing I wanted to ask was, um, was having assumed that position, did you have to furlough or let people go? We have not. We, um, this is an extremely wealthy institution and to date, um, we have not had to, no one has, even people who in the initial phase, say March to June of 2020, who couldn't do their work entirely at home were kept on and were given alternate tasks. Um, right. And the head has 
has promised or had promised until the beginning of the fiscal year, July 1st, to keep everyone employed and insured. Um, He's been very direct going forward that these next couple of months are a huge risk. You know, if we can't keep the virus at bay, that may change everything. Right. I think that's seems to be the case for a lot of uh, institutions that, um, you know, they, they furloughed people and then many of them, uh, you know, they're getting to the point now where they can't sustain that any longer. So they're really hitting a a point where people are going to be letting go being people will be let go. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, you know, and even if they're reopening, they still can't sustain the, the situation. So, um, as I mentioned to you before, I do want to have a, say, a director come on and speak to, to the challenges that they face so that we can have a, another point of view of, of, of how, of like what the reality is when you look at that, that balance sheet and you say, I, I we can't afford this, but like, you know, from our point of view, from people that are working in collections, it's, it's, it's very grim. Um, and, um, so, you know, with that, I think I want to take, you know, some solace and, 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 uh, there's four points in your, um, in your article on self-reflection that you mentioned, uh, are ways that, uh, you know, maybe we should, you know, slow down and sort of, uh, contemplate. You mentioned, uh, an hour of meditation, uh, each week, um, you know, uh, uh, taking a walk, doing a journal, um, or, uh, or talking with a trusted colleague. Um, and I think this is a critical one. Don't expect answers, uh, unless you're willing to ask questions. I think that's a great point. Uh, and then also ask yourself mindful questions. Um, I thought these were, these were great this is a great starting point for people to reflect upon themselves. Can you, can you elaborate on, on, on these points a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you have to, if this is something you've never done, obviously you have to, it's like anything you have to pick the method that works for you the best. Um, I'm a walker. So I walk every morning and every evening and um, for between half an hour to an hour. And I, I have to say, especially in the land of COVID, I found, it, I found it particularly important because there's only so much time you can spend in this much proximity to your laptop. Um, it's pretty unhealthy. And, um, and just to get out and fresh air and just process. Um, but it really isn't helpful if you're not asking yourself the questions. And it's also, I think that it's a difference between asking yourself, how could this have gone better than, oh, I'm such a worm. I feel terrible. Um, I am a sad person. Um, the point is not to sort of wallow, although there are some days when you need a little wallowing. Um, the point is to, to try and move forward and think of a way to move forward. So you don't repeat the same patterns over and over again. For some people, um, the way to do that is to write. Um, I, 
I mean, despite the fact that I write a lot, that is not my preferred way. I'd rather just think as I'm walking. Um, I have a couple of friends who, who meditate and that, that really works for them. Um, I, I just haven't made the space in my life to do that, but I just think it, it has to be something that both takes you away, but it gives you a channel to come back to what's happened to you in a way to process. Um, cause I think part of the, the action of doing that is to sort of allow yourself to be a little bit vulnerable and to say, mm. you know, here I am. And, um, and how am I going to move forward based on whatever happened? And also, and I think this is especially important for women, but just to say that went really well. And I am good at what I do. <laughs> yes, exactly. It isn't, I don't think it should just be, you know, the, the bad time that you go over. It's also the good time. And, and for me, it's also, I'm finding it's a time when a lot of ideas pop up. Um, and the only hope is that I can remember them by the time I get back from my walk. Yeah. So I don't know if that was a helpful answer or not, but no, I think, I think the idea of, uh, of taking yourself out of your, your normal environment and putting yourself in a place of, of quiet contemplation is, is the key. Um, to anyone listening right now, please uh, send us your questions via the chat on the YouTube live and anything, uh, any experiences you might be having or sharing, um, uh, your doubts, please, uh, Go ahead and, and reach out to us. Um, I do want to sort of elaborate on on where we are. So I, as I kind of mentioned in my intro, I think that we're at a spot where we need to think about where we need two types of examination, like people that have jobs and people that lost their jobs. And, uh, and, and, and I want to go down both paths. Uh, and let's just start now with people who may have lost their work and, and they're trying to figure out how to get back into a job. And, 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 and even if they want to stay in the museum and collections care, um, field. So how do we, um, put ourselves in the best mindset in order to approach this? Um, well, I was thinking about this question this morning, actually on my walk and, um, I think, you know, I think for a lot of us, particularly when we're starting out, but even when we get the dream job, um, we see our career as kind of a straight line that's going to go somewhere at least comfortable um, or exciting um, and that will we'll end at some important place and feeling of self-worth and all of that. But in reality, I think careers go kind of like this. They zig and they zag. And um, so that's, that's one thought. And my second thought that I want to preface all of this with is I, I don't, nothing I say precludes the fact that this is a horrible moment that people are going through real dramatic financial, emotional, and every other kind of, and 
health issues as well. Um, so I don't want to make anything I say sound like, oh, you should just do this and it'll be fine. Because I realize that there is so much hinging on this, um, whether you're single and you've had to move home with your family or you're coupled and and you can't make a career choice because the other partner still has their job. But I think one of the things to think about, and it may not be as true for collections folks, but I think it probably is, is to really, in your moment of quiet contemplation, kind of pick apart um, the skills that bring you to that job. Um, you're you're well-ordered. Um, you are detail-oriented. You can hold a lot of facts in your head. Um, you are a, potentially a good people person because you deal with everybody from the insurance people to the shippers and packers to the all the people who work in collections under you or around you. And look at those skills rather than I'm going to die if I don't get another collections job. Um, I am not here to tell you what other jobs hold those skills, but I think if you don't understand the package that makes you, you and good at your job, you can't possibly market it um, to someone else who has no earthly idea what your job is and probably thinks it's just fake and made up anyway. Um, you may be lucky enough to get another museum job, but let's just say you're not. This is like a worst case. I think you have to really understand what those skills are in order to go somewhere else. And if you're, if you're not that, if you're in some other facet of the museum, there are plenty of places, you know, development is obvious, IT and tech and digital stuff is obvious. Those all have translations to other nonprofits, to schools, to universities, and to business. Um, so I, I, I think, I think, you know, a couple hours of kind of unpacking what your job means in terms of the skill set will help you better translate it. And, and it's not a bad thing if you have to press pause. It really isn't. Um, there's a lot. I think now people get a free pass. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, uh, who looks at your resume three years from now is going to say, oh, yeah, that was COVID. And, and if they can't remember, you can tell them. I'm like, right. you know, I, I've had two friends who lost their directorship and, I, you know, it's terrible. But the only thing I could say is, you know, this is not, you're in good company. There's a lot of people that have lost their positions. Right. I mean, and would you have a, a criteria? I'm I'm not going to say you're going to have the answer, but um, if you are considering, if you're sort of on the fence of like trying to find another museum job versus, you know, finding something outside of the museum, um, maybe, maybe there's a way to, uh, ask yourself certain questions to, to decide which way to go. Would you have any insight on that? Whether to go museum or non-museum? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, 
I'm a pretty risk averse individual. <laughs> so I, I think a lot depends on, on you and your personal situation and how much you can in, endure financially and sort of emotionally. So how long do you want to wait? You know, if you hold right. out for a museum job, it may be a longer wait. On the other hand, if you're able to move, you, you should, you know, the, I think your chances are much greater. I'm still seeing job ads. Um, it's not like yeah. everything is shut down. People are hiring. And, and I, I don't have any statistics to back this up, but I do think people in my generation, this, this may be the moment that finally pushes us off the stage a little bit. Um, and, and that will move the bulge in the snake forward a little bit. So I wouldn't give that up, but, um, I also think that, and I see this in, in my own children and in a number of sort of what are they, Gen, Gen Zs um, here, is if I take this job, it's like I'm taking it. I'm all in. I'm there. And yet, well, I mean, you don't want to be a jerk and leave after two weeks, but it's not, you're not signing in blood. It's not a lifetime commitment. You know, if right. you take a job right. for six months and it pays your grocery bills and um, whatever, and then and but the whole time the periscope is up and you're looking and you find something great at the end of that period, go. You know, it doesn't yeah. make you a bad person. It just right. hopefully it opens some doors. You learn some stuff. Um, it was interesting, and you're off to the next thing. Yeah, well, and especially now, there's there's plenty of people that are going to be happy to take that position. So, mm -hmm. um, I think there's also, I mean, some of the jobs that I have seen posted are for the maybe the other side of the industry on the vendor side. Um, a lot of shipping companies hiring people, even mm -hmm. if it's temporary. So, I mean, maybe there's even space for a, a slight pivot in your career. Maybe you're a registrar, but you know, you could be a project manager for a, for a, a logistics company or you know, things like that, where your skills are still the same skills, but uh, you're applying them in a different way. So, um, so let's look at the other, <clears throat> the other end of the spectrum. Those of us, uh, of us, I'm, I'm, I can't really conclude myself in that situation as a self-employed uh, freelancer, but, um, not that I have any work, but, uh, people that have, uh, institutional jobs that are, um, maybe they're charged with, uh, taking on further responsibilities. Maybe, you know, they're a registrar and still maybe they're art handling as well. What have you, how do we advocate for ourselves in this environment and, uh, say, just try not to get taken advantage of? Well, that's something to be honest, I'm, I'm still struggling with, I mean, look, I'm super grateful for everything my institution has done for me, but I will say um, at one point recently, I was kind of whining to my husband and he said, well, you know, they're getting a really good deal. And I said, what do you mean? Cause mm -hmm. I got a very nice bump in salary, but he said, you're still doing your old job. Right. And right. I am except I don't feel that I'm doing it as well. I feel like I have, you know, 50 plates to keep in the air instead of 24. And, um, and I'm, I'm not keeping them all in the air. 
you know, um, I'm not keeping up with, with the collections record management that I need to do. And I mean, fortunately I had uh, two ex exhibits taken away from me because our gallery closed, but at the same time, we're supposed to be creating this deep digital bench to sort of keep, keep our gallery alive. And I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of people stuff and not art stuff. And I think that's, it's really hard. And, um, and I suspect that, um, you know, that's happening to a lot of people and it's hard to be the boss of yourself. Right. For sure. For sure. I, I mean, how do we, um, do we have any leverage for negotiation right now? I don't. I mean, I've, I've just gotten this bump. I, I, I think that in six months, if it seems like, God forbid, we're still under this cloud and we're not going anywhere, I, I feel pretty confident that, assuming I've done a good job and there isn't a total revolution and uprising here, that I can um, go in and say, you know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Right, 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 right. You're paying me this much to do this, and now you're paying me this much more to do something that is that is equally this big and bigger. <laughs> Where right. I have people's lives and careers in my hand, so maybe a little more would be nice. Um, but uh, again, a lot depends on on how things go. Right. And more money doesn't give you more time either. Mm -mm. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm about to give back. Um, we, we lose our vacation at the end of the calendar year. And I just figured out when I can take some, cause I didn't take any all summer, um, that I'm probably going to give back at least two and a half weeks of vacation, which wow. is just irritating, just beyond measure. <laughs> For sure. Um, it does, Robin, we don't have any questions yet, do we? Not yet. Um, but it's like even just sitting here listening to you guys talk, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> like just yeah. so many, just about like what you were talking about with jobs and the generational thing. Like, I, you know, it's working in this field, like I kind of fell into it. I came from, even though my parents would shoot me for saying this, very blue collar people. So the fact that I went for liberal arts degrees and got jobs in these fields, I never aimed to work for a museum. And I'm a, I'm a late Gen Xer, early millennial. So I think our term is Zennial, which sounds horrible, but that's the generation <laughs> I am. But I had, I had two baby boomer parents. So they were very much like, you get a job, you stick with it. And the fact mm -hmm. that our generation was really like looking at bouncing around a little bit more, um, trying to gain experience just kind of blew their mind. And I have a younger brother who's firmly millennial and he was doing it. But now, you know, the world we're in is so different and it's just so like trying to navigate it and understand it and being thankful. Like John said, I'm an independent person too, an independent contractor. So I have my contracts, but I also know that once those contracts end in two to three years, God knows what the economy is going to be doing or our mm -hmm. field. So I think we're only kind of seeing the beginning of it right now. And it's going to be real interesting to see those ripples as the years go on, you know, and you're right. People are hiring, but they're also hiring that same deal now where it's, they're still asking for master's degree. And if you look at what the pay scale is, it's terrible. 
it's terrible. You know, like I couldn't make a, li- I, the only reason I can do what I do is I have a very nice partner who's a federal employee. So he provides me this fabulous thing called health insurance. <laughs> but I always jokingly say like, thank God for that. But, um, it's going to be interesting just cause we're, we're in the kind of a weird wild west right now when it comes to jobs in the arts fields and just what we're looking at. So I just, it's just more food for thought, you know, especially too, when I look at my kids, because I have two, I guess they're Gen Zers. They were born in 09. I can't even imagine, like, once they're ready for jobs, I'm going to be like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you can, like, yeah. plumber. <laughs> like, that seems to be a growth field for what mm-hmm. it is. So it's it's going to be real interesting to kind of see this new world we're entering into right now. So, Well, I think the you kind of touch on a couple of interesting areas. Um, the same issues that we had before are still there. Pay equity, gender parity. Um, and if anything, we're sort of in an, an environment that could potentially, depending on, you know, the institution or the management and your, your leadership, you know, even exaggerate those things as opposed to, I mean, we would hope we, we have a moment to reset and restructure, um, uh, Joan, you know, you recommended Frank, um, Bagnone. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I was reading an article about him and that's exactly what he did. And, um, uh, hopefully, you know, I'm going to try and invite him on to talk from an administrator's point of view, but, um, yeah, I mean, like, how do we confront those, those old demons that haven't gone away? Um, and how do we keep them, keep them at bay in this, in this climate? Well, and what's even worse is that, um, and I think we, we've talked about this earlier, is that one of the things COVID did was in, in the shutdown and we closed away, we furloughed or let go all the front-facing employees. Many of those are, um, are the BIPOC employees and many of those are women. And, um, and as a result you wonder in two or three years, as Robin said, what is the field going to look like? You know, are we resetting the clock? So we're even whiter and more elitist than we were three to five years ago. I mean, we were just at a sort of tipping point where you could see maybe there's going to be some change, but if you shut out all these people and you still have this, this, entry ticket of this pretty expensive degree. Um, and we're not, no one seems willing to, to sort of say, well, you have this BA in art history or whatever. I'm just going to take a chance on you for a while. Let's, let's see how this works out. And then if you do well, then we'll, we'll sort of support you or at least support you intellectually and emotionally as you go through graduate school. But no, no, we have to have someone who's got this fancy degree and, you know, two internships that they struggled mightily to get. And then they don't, they can't get a job or they get a $12 an hour job that they can't live on and they have to live with mom and dad. And that's sort of awful. So I'm not telling you yeah. anything you don't know, but, yeah. but I, I do think, I think that there's a real, um, there's a real sea change happening and it, it could go one way or it could go the other. Um, 
you know, we could end up with a sort of ho- a, an even worse situation than we thought we were in a year ago. Um, well, now that you're in a leadership position, uh, at least, you know, speaking from your point of view, what are some ways that, um, that we can sort of cut this off and restructure so that we can maybe, maybe we have a chance now to end these things um, end or reduce the impact of some of these uh, disparities. Well, and that, and that's one of the reasons I really want you to um, hear Frank Vagnone, but because he was able to actually um, use COVID in a kind of healthy way. If, that sounds like a um, yeah. moron, but I, I um, because he was forced to lay off so many people when he brought them back, um, he brought them back at the same time that he worked on salary equity for those he was bringing back and he couldn't bring back everybody, but he, but some of them, and this may not be true for, all museums or even many museums, but some places have had employees that, that are boomers or almost boomers and have worked there for a long time. Well, if you started in, I don't know, 1990, you may have started at, at a really terrible salary. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that race, gender, time, you didn't advocate, blah, blah, blah. But but whenever you start at a terrible salary, you're moving forward. All your increments are terrible, too. So Frank was able to kind of level the playing field so that right. people with th- doing this job get this amount plus um, their experience. And I, I think, you know, he's very clever and he really likes people. He really cares about the team. And, um, and I think directors who feel that way, it's easier for them to sort of hate this expression, but think outside the box and really think about ways to, to make that happen. Yeah. Um, rather than just saying, well, you know, it was always this way, so it's going to be that way again. I just have to wait for some magic moment when we have enough of a gate or admission that, that the budget feels like it's blossoming again. Um, so. Right. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's essentially a, um, you need, whether it's a board and or director that's brave enough to take a pay cut raise the the lowest salaries um, in order to reduce that and also be able to hire from uh, a different pool of candidates um, and and not always go to the, you know, NYU Museum Studies program, for example. You know, there's a lot of historically black colleges and universities that also have museum studies programs. Yep. But we're not seeing them in registrar positions, for example. Um, so, uh, Robin, it looks like we have some activity in the in the chat. Uh, what's going on down there? We do. Um, we have someone, William Brown, saying our institution is experiencing a number of separations and retirements and just trying to balance multiple positions. So I think that's happening a lot, it seems. 
um, trying to cover all those spaces. He also relayed that he studied museum studies and ended up working in archives and finally became a registrar in the archives field. So I, you know, going back to that point, it always kind of fascinates me because I, I left graduate school with no museum experience. I was going to do historic preservation in South Florida, which they, that was an attempt and it didn't work because I ended up working for museums instead. So I always find it interesting when people come from slightly different fields, you know what I mean, to come into the museum world. Um, Elena in Cardona also says, I greatly admire Joan, always read her blog posts. All these crises are for everything brought to light museums, dirty laundry and issues. And I totally agree on that <laughs> point. I do think it's interesting that like the COVID thing kind of brought up, you know, I can't even remember the timeline it feels like now, but we were also COVID focused. And then all of a sudden it kind of, I don't want to say it was calming down because where I live, it has never calmed down, but, um, when all of a sudden the BLM movement really forced its way onto everyone's picture, it really, it changed things a lot. But I think because we were already in like crisis mode with COVID, it hit on a different level when it came to that kind of re our reaction to that crisis as well. So it's just kind of interesting to think about that as well. So let's let's shift the conversation slightly, or let's just take where we are in the conversation and, and flip it on its head. So we've identified um, a lot of the issues that we're that we're facing, um, but what are the opportunities that that lie before us at the moment? Uh, are there any any positives that you can see uh, that we could come out of this? And um, I hope nobody feels that it's it's uh, whether it's too soon or whatever. I think, I think we have to also seize the moment um, and, and, and try and, um, and try and make something of, of, of this moment, whether it's just having time to, to reflect on our careers or time to, um, you know, pursue a new path. Uh, How do you, how do you see the moment? Well, um, I do think, I mean, let's see. Uh, I'll speak organizationally first. Um, I think I, you know, I work with a team of archivists, librarians, um, and they, I don't mean to generalize, but they tend to be, um, they like order and they like rules <laughs> and um, they like, th they don't like change. And um one of the things that I've appreciated about this is that I am able to say with a great deal of certainty, I don't know. I can't tell you. <laughs> we are just flying by the seat of our pants. And I think for, for my little team, and I suspect for other organizations, there's a sort of it's sort of freeing to, to know that you don't really know. You're just, you are literally living in this moment, maybe just today or maybe this week, you know, until the power goes out for five days and you're like, is my rare book room growing mold? Gee, I hope not. Um, it's, so I think there, you know, it's a sort of backhanded good, but um, it's it really teaches you to kind of unleash yourself from I have to have it this way or life isn't good. Um, and I think I think individually, 
as terrible as it is. And, uh, you know, as I said before, I, I admit that I've somehow landed on my feet in the middle of this, but I, I do think if it teaches you anything, it hopefully will teach you that you are a valuable person, that you have a lot of skills and that there, those skills allow you to open many doors, not just the door you thought you should go through. Um, and, you know, you can always come back to this. Um, right. Now, I'm at the end of a, of a long career. And when I look back, I've had a lot of zigs and zags. Well, certainly one of the through lines for me is writing. Um, I wrote as a curator. I wrote as a development person. I wrote as a director. Now I write mostly for myself, but um, I've done a lot of research but no matter what position I had, that that's my through line. And I, I think if you could think about, well, what is my through line? E- even if you've only been in the field for, you know, five and a half minutes, what's the thing that meant the most to you? Um, and, and then try and imagine that in a different setting. Right. And, and honestly, you know, take the, take what the universe is telling us, which is, you know, nothing is set. Um, everything can change. So it, you're just going to disappoint yourself and be distressed if you are completely rigid about your career. Right. There's this moment of forced humility um, actually requires one to recognize that they have to be humble and, uh, and, uh, it seems again, sort of like an oxymoron, but it's, it's an important point. I think, um, you know, I mean, I was certainly, you know, I, I live in, you know, New York, just outside of New York and, you know, in April and, you know, you see so many people getting sick and dying every day. It was very, very stressful, very stressful. And, you know, I, I, you know, the, the first major breakouts were near me and, and, you know, so yeah, we all were just, it's just so tense and, you know, I didn't care that I didn't, all of my work went away and got postponed. Um, I just wanted to not get sick. And, um, and now it's, 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 it's another thing where you, you know, just have to, you know, recognize that this is, um, it's a moment where you just have to kind of give up. I say not give up, but, you know, give in to the moment and, um, and recognize that I can't control everything. So um, what are uh, other people saying in the, in the chat, Robin? Um, Going back to kind of talking about just institutions, it's saying uh, William Brown comments that this year has forced my institution to become more inclusive and address the sins of the past, which is good. I think hitting that, I've seen it with a few other people too. just kind of, it, it caused everyone to step back. And I know we've talked about it amongst ARCs because we're forming a um, idea task force and all that, that like, we've been talking about a lot of these issues forever. It feels like, I mean, you know, how there's a lot of, uh, to be frank, white people, you know what I mean? Middle-class mm-hmm. white people within our jobs. Um, it's having the idea that, yeah, we acknowledge it, but now actually having a chance to come up with ideas and, and concepts that might actually change how our field looks um, is really important right now. And I think I'm seeing that across the board. 
Um, someone else says really, you know, it seems like registrars don't have negotiating power on any level when it comes to negotiation it is disheartening. We need to push to advocate for a profession. I, I know that I felt like I've been in that position, just so thankful to have a job in the museum field. Um, you don't feel like you can advocate. So I don't know if you have any tips on people who feel like they're in that position. Cause kind of like what you're saying, like a lot of me right now is just thankful to have work. You know what I mean? So if I had to do a contract negotiation right now, I feel like I'd be like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to pay me, <laughs> like you're paying me, <laughs> like great. So I don't you know. Hear that arcs. Money. Robin wants more money. That's <laughs> what I'm saying right now, I'm going to be upselling. No, it's, I, I was jokingly say like, I have a hard time doing that anyway, because I, my, uh, my family again was blue collar. My, my dad was the first one who had like a white collar job, but he's a salesman. So it was, I was never taught how to like wheel and deal when it comes to salary. I was just like, woohoo, I have a job with my weird anthropology history degrees. So I don't know if you have any tips on how to uh, approach this kind of thing um, in this world we're living in. If someone is up for rene renegotiation, if you have any advice for them right now. Well, I think that, um, first of all, I don't think there's a one size fits all for that question, even though it's a very important question. Um, Second point, uh, on the GEM website are a number of um, tip sheets called Five Things You Need to Know About. And one of them is salary negotiations. Um, and I believe there are two different ones. I believe there's one for if you're already in a job and are renegotiating and one for if you're in the sweet spot where you've been asked to take a job, but you haven't said yes yet. Um, one of the things I always remind people is, yeah, it's the salary, sure, and you don't want to undersell yourself, um, but there's a lot of other stuff, too, and um, if you don't know the living wage where you live, and the living wage is, is more important than um, what the local... Um, lowest rate of pay is, um, you need to really understand what it's going to cost you to live in that area. Um, and then what are all the add-ons that you haven't even thought about? Like, are you taking public transportation to work? Um, what is it going to cost to buy a car there? Um, I know recently in a blog post, I spent some time on MIT's living wage calculator, and I just picked a bunch of random places and looked at the differences in the living wage. And, you know, you don't have to be an economist to understand that super different to live in San Francisco, let's say, than in St. Louis. Um, but if you don't understand that, you you don't understand how far or how little your money's going to do for you. That's one thing. Um, and you really have to go into these um, discussions prepared and fairly knowledgeable. Um, the other thing is, what are the extras that you might need? I mean, one of my colleagues is the mother of three children under 11. And so her, her biggest need particularly when she first started, was time. Um, she figured out that at 35 hours, you still get the health benefit 
as opposed to 40. Well, those five extra hours are super important. That's pickup time from daycare and then two kids at school. It's time to maybe go to a soccer game in the afternoon or something. And so that's what she negotiated for. So I think time, understanding the money piece, really understanding it. Um, Some places more rural places, sometimes there's housing. Um, If you are paying a phenomenal amount at daycare, I mean, you can pay as much as at an independent school, it seems to me, for daycare sometimes. Uh, Yes. So, you know, are there ways to say, I don't want to raise, but have you ever done X? Um, Is there, there, we interviewed an, a ton of women for the women's book who didn't have any health insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is it possible to ask for, if not health insurance, then money to participate in another program, like one that's run by the chamber of commerce. That's not hugely expensive or to get 50% of your health insurance costs or something like that. Um, To add on, you know, is there maternity and paternity leave? Would it help if you know you're going to have children um, to add a couple of weeks of leave or something like, I mean, only you know what you need in in this particular moment, but to really strategize what those needs are, it's easier to ask than just to go, oh, oh, that sounds fine. Great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. Oh, go ahead, John. No, uh, no, go ahead and say what you're going to say. Oh, I was just going to say what you're talking about is, um, so when I had my kids God, 10 years ago, um, it was very much a part of that, uh, formula was figuring out, okay, if I go back to work, does it make sense? You know what I mean? Like if my, looking at my salary, is it all just paying? We used to call it our second house because it kind of like it costs like the amount of a mortgage essentially to pay for at the time we had a nanny to start out with. And then we moved on to childcare. And I remember it was real interesting to kind of compare that and be like, it's still worth to work. You know what I mean? Like I'm still bringing home some money, but, um, you, I really think it's important to lay all that stuff out to kind of figure out, you know what I mean? Like, is it, it, does it just make sense financially? And every time we've come up with amongst my husband and I about a move, we've sat down and laid out all that stuff. We've always been like, okay, if you were in this and if you were in that, you know, and do that financial thing. And all that stems back to when I was in high school, my dad lost his job. And so we had a couple of years right before I went to college where we had no money. So I think I'm hoping that this is another time what's happening now with people might be another one of those moments where you're like, I really have to think about these things before I take on my next job, my next career whatever, because now I know what kind of the lowest point is, you know what I mean? Amongst things. And hopefully you can build up from that point of taking all that stuff into consideration as you plan out your future. So that's at least my hope. Of course, like I said, for my kids, like I keep hoping because they're fifth graders that they'll forget all this and not think about that year of being taught by mom, (laughs) but still, still. <laughs> I, w- I wanted to also add. Uh, I, I don't remember when this was said, but uh, Amanda, our, our our colleague here on Arcs Chat, had this really great point. I think it was when we were discussing with uh, Michelle Miller Fisher about sort of the sort of activism that was happening in the museum. Um, she mentioned what she does is she keeps a, a log of all the things that she does every day at work. 
And so, so when she comes up to renegotiate what she does, she can say, look, this is how I spend my day. Uh, I do this and this and this. And, and as a result, I deserve X. Um, and, it, and it's a great way to, to leverage your position when you can really show on a day-by-day basis, um, this is what I'm doing. So I just thought well, that that was a really smart. It is really smart. And it's a way of self-reflection because I think too many of us, you know, you go to work and you, you in your head, your day is planned one way, but it takes a left and right turn and you end up doing all sorts of different things. But what she's doing is kind of um, categorizing all those things and they may not be what it is asked of her, but she has fulfilled them. She has succeeded in them. And, and so, yes, she comes off at the end both to herself, but also to her, to her leadership as a far more well-rounded person. And I think, just, just as a human exercise, it's important to say, oh yeah, I did do that. And it was good. And I didn't even mean to do that. And it turned out really well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah. So, yeah. We're, um, we're at the hour mark here and I don't want to abuse your time, but, uh, I do want to look one more time at the, at the comments before we, uh, wrap things up, if that's okay with you. That's fine. Um, so someone, this is again, Elena in Cardona. She was thinking about having a dialogue with leadership for inclusivity and diversity. And she had kind of the thought saying, unless the executive director of the board wants to create a task force, which is fine, but what if it starts at the bottom? So has anyone had experience with these kind of groups being formed at the lower levels and then for, or have you seen anything like that um, at your institutions? I have not. I mean, at my particular institution, it's actually happening at the board and Mm -hmm. they're reaching right down into all of us and either asking for things or saying, good job, keep doing what you're doing. Um, I think one of the concerns I would have, and it's, um, is that I think boards don't take well to being judged (laughs) and um, when the hourly employees start to say, you know, uh, this is, it's one thing if they're saying I'm not being paid well enough, but if they're saying you aren't running this organization well enough, um, that has to be navigated extremely carefully. And, um, I think there are just too many boards who have no idea what their hourly front facing staff even do, what they face on a day-to-day basis, what their lives are like. Um, you know, there's a whole thing that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I think I recommended recently in some, in a post I wrote about boards is that it would be really good if boards met with, some of these groups of hourly front-facing staff. Um, every time they come on the museum campus, they should meet with a different group and just listen, just for a listening time to hear what it's like. You know, do you get challenged in the parking lot because you're a BIPOC person? Do you, how long does it take you to get to work because you can't afford to live near the museum? Um, do you have to have a second job? Um, despite your degrees, you know, there are all sorts of things that I think just listening and 
learning about people helps you make more empathetic and informed decisions. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of a generational question to it as well, because it always feels like uh, somewhat bored tend to be a little older you know what I mean? If you're in board position and then you're front of staff, like I know when I started out in this career 15 years ago, the millennials were still the true youngins, you know what I mean? Like, and it was almost like the bad word millennial. And now it's so funny now. Cause like the millennials, like I said, I'm on the edge of being a millennial and I'm going to be 42 in a couple of weeks. So I'm like, you can't really call us the youngins anymore. But to me, it was always watching these folks who were very like, well, you're brand new you don't, you can't have an opinion yet because you haven't been in the workforce long enough. And then folks who are just coming out of school or just coming up, were like, but we have an opinion because right. we've had, I don't want to say real world experience, but just a different experience than you have. So I don't know if that's still happening or if it's gotten a little better or. I think it is still happening. I would like to think since that is my generation that not all of us are, you know, noxious jerks. Um <laughs> I'm talking in wide swaths. Like I always used to, yeah. that always used to kill me when I first started. They'd be like, you know, especially the folks who I worked with were elder Gen Xers and they'd be like, all these millennials. And I'm like, you can't say all. Like, can you sit there and just be like, you can't like throw them all in a pocket because no. that's just not how humanity works. So, but I do think, I do think there's a difference then, you know, there is, there's sort of content knowledge that's kind of narrow. And then there's life knowledge that is very broad. And with my much younger colleagues, some of whom are younger than my children, are their life knowledge is, if not broad, it's certainly way different than mine. And I think if you're just being a humane, kind person, you listen because you can learn stuff and that's mm-hmm. what you want to do. Um, but I think, I think it takes a skillful board president and a skillful director to kind of make those connections and say, you know, this week, I want you to sit down with these people while you're here. And, and I want you to get to know them because they're part of the museum too. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same could be said for fancy curators who really need to talk to the guards and sometimes hear what's actually happening in the galleries when you're not there. (laughs) Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, and everyone else is just right now saying, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a great conversation when I go back to the chat. Um, someone did say, I really appreciate Joan's reflection as she assumed leadership at our institution. I wish that I wish this was something other library and related organizations would address. So I thought that was a very kind thing okay. to say. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, everybody, for listening in again. Um, and for starting out the, the next season of ARCS Chat with us. We'll, we're going to continue on the first Tuesday of every month, and it looks like we're going to adopt this 1 p.m. afternoon slot, uh, at least for now. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to touch on as we, as we close was that, uh, you know, we had a very important shipper uh, discussion back in March or April, whenever that was, and that was a very, very uh, highly talked about chat. Um, 
if you are looking for more of that shipper type information, uh, and you know, you're in a museum that's, that's very active in that respect. Now, um, I do want to recommend that you check out, uh, for the love of They have, uh, lots of very big shippers on there posting constant updates about flight schedules and, uh, quarantine information, et cetera. So I definitely recommend that. Also, if you are looking at reopening and you don't already know about, the Art Services Worker Safety Coalition. Please check them out. Um, I'm going to put all of these resources in our description for the for the episode. Um, as always, we're going to make this into a podcast, so it's going to come out the following Friday after the Tuesday. Um, and with the podcast, we're going to feature a new uh, segment called A Day in the Life, where um, we want to highlight our unique position as being uh, the uh, those responsible for our collection. So if you have an interesting collection story, uh, whether it's uh, related to things you did during, during lockdown or it's just something unique about uh, the objects that you are the steward of, uh, please um, record a voice memo on your phone. And just tell us who you are, where you work, and uh, you know, no more than five minutes of a uh, of a story. And we're going to feature that in the podcast, just because there are so many of us from different backgrounds that have unique things. Like, for example, did you know that uh, Tony Kaiser, the president of ARCS, uh, had to learn how to drive a tank because she works at the National World War II Museum? I mean, that's pretty amazing. So, stories like that are are, are good to know. So, uh, feel free to share that with us. And Robin, is it true that we can call those in to? Or is that is that not? Uh... We can. So um, basically, ARCS has a Google number that you can call, leave a voicemail if you'd like to. You'll probably hear my voice saying, hey, thanks for calling ARCS. So if you want to call 847-440-4294, um, you can leave a voice memo that way as well. Or like John said, you can email us if you want to use the voice memo application on your phone. You can email us at info at arcsinfo.org, and we will have those available as well so um with that i want uh to say you can of course download the podcast at uh, apple and google Podcasts, stitcher and spotify um and i think that's that's it for our closing so joan thank you so much for making time uh to to be with us again today and reflect after about a year uh, almost a year since we spoke with you last so thanks again uh the chats everybody seems to really appreciate you so uh thank you thank you so much and check out her blog leadership matters 1213.wordpress.com uh with that we're going to close thanks so much thank you everyone and now, a day in the life. Hi, ARCS. My name is Carrie Van Horn. I work at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. And I wanted to share just a quick story. Um, one of the most amazing things I think that's happened to me as a registrar was when I was working at an organization that repatriated Maori human remains. And as part of that, the... Maori representatives came to the museum to be part of a ceremony to prepare the remains for their journey back home. And they also had a representative on the loading dock who escorted the remains onto the truck, all the while singing songs um, to the remains, which I thought was really beautiful. And that will always stick in my mind as one of the highlights of my job. 
on a related note, I would highly recommend reading a book also related to Maori art that uh, one of my mentors shared with me. Um, it's called First Light, A Magical Journey by Carol Obiso, and it documents her experience of organizing an exhibition of Maori um, artifacts and art on an international tour and just kind of the amazing experiences that she had along the way. So, cheers. Thanks again for listening. Go wash your hands.